Welcome. When I first met Ron Culberson at a social event, I told him that my expertise was in near-death and shared death experiences. He explained his mission in life as bringing humor to hospice. Well, that got my attention. Welcome to the Afterlife Files, where we investigate near-death experiences, shared death experiences, and all things afterlife, and how they affect you. Unlike podcasts that are just stories, we will give you a heads up on what to look for in our conversation, and then after the interview, stick around, we help you make sense of those accounts so you can incorporate the insights into your life. I think you'll find that once having your most profound questions answered, living life in the physical is filled with more peace and joy. We spend an awful lot of time at the Afterlife Files talking about what happens after death occurs. Rarely have we had the opportunity to talk about the process of dying and how to do it well. The concept of care that is the hospice experience is part of that. Having humor as part of that experience helps us look at the experience of dying with a new, lighter lens. It gives us a new perspective. With a master's degree in social work, Ron Culberson spent the first part of his career working in a large hospice organization as a clinical social worker, middle manager, and senior leader. As a speaker, humorist, and author of four books, including Do It Well, Make It Fun, The Key to Success in Life, Death, and Almost Everything in Between, Ron's mission is to change the workplace culture so that organizations are more productive and staff are more content. He was the past president of the National Speakers Association and is a recognized expert on the benefit of humor and laughter. I hope you have fun watching our interview. Hey, Ron, we are really glad to have you with us here at the Afterlife Files. Welcome. Thanks a lot. I'm so glad to be here. I'm, I'm glad you're here, too. So tell us about hospice. What does that mean? Are there misconceptions about what it is that happens in hospice? I, I think that's probably one of the, the most challenging parts of hospice is the understanding of what it's all about. So uh, it came to this country in the late 70s, and and basically... It came about because in, in England, a woman named Cicely Saunders found that, that when people got into a situation with a terminal illness or an illness that was not curable and, and may have some time limit, that really the, 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 the mainstream healthcare system didn't have anything for them. And there was a lot of uh, attempts at cure and putting people, people through unnecessary tests and just uh, kind of an environment that really wasn't conducive to healing. So it, she created a, a concept of hospice. Now, in England, hospice was a place, typically, that you would go. But in the United States, it's primarily home care. It's, it's a concept of care. It's a holistic type of approach to care. So the, the vast majority of it's done in people's homes because that's where most people want to be. 
And um, it involves a team of professionals that include a social worker, a nurse, a doctor, a chaplain, uh, volunteers, uh, occupational therapists, and physical therapists as needed. But the idea is to treat the whole person with uh, comfort measures and what's called palliative care, not towards cure, but as a way to make the quality of their life better. And, and typically, it's for people who have some sort of life-limiting illness. And, uh, and it used to be in the early days, people used the term six months as the, as the guideline. But, but nowadays, they're, they're starting palliative care much sooner so people can get involved in programs. And it, it evolves into hospice care at some point. Uh, later down the line. Uh, but it's also covered by Medicare. There's a really good Medicare benefit that covers hospice care. And that's, that's one of the, the better aspects of, of, the, of, the, of the, the, the type of care that it is, because it, it does have good support through Medicare. Yeah, nice. And um, so when somebody enters into, or why would people want to enter into the hospice care? Well, I think it goes back to that concept that, that you know, when you're in a hospital or you're in a, a typical home care setting, those folks are not necessarily specifically trained to care for people at that point of an illness uh, towards the end of life. There's a lot of pain management specialty that goes along with it. There's a lot of psychological and emotional support that needs to go along with it. And, and typically hospice folks are better at that because that's what they're trained to do and they have a lot of experience in it. So I think it's a point where people need a different kind of care and, and these comfort measures uh, can actually be healing. I've seen people come into a hospice program and get better, uh, not, not necessarily permanently, but for a period of time because the type of care is so much better. Nice. So that begs the question of how did you get into it? Why did, you know, how does that happen? I, I don't, think of that as a typical career path. Yeah, so I was the youngest person in my hospice. Um, back in the day, in the mid-80s, uh, most people didn't go into hospice right out of school. It was usually people doing a second career, like um, a nurse who might have been an oncology nurse or a family practice nurse going into, into that as a second, uh, second part of her career or his career. Uh, doctors, same way. So um, I had had an experience in graduate school where I had a seven-year-old nephew that died of a brain tumor. And it it occurred to me at that point that I'm 25 years old and never really thought about this, thought about the the process, thought about grief, thought about loss. Um, I grew up in a small town, so I went to a lot of funerals growing up, but it just didn't process it and just started exploring it. Uh, did a paper in, in grad school on it. Uh, when I came out of school as a social worker, applied to a number of different jobs, and that was the one I got. And, and I'll tell you, as a 25-year-old, I don't think there's a better job to start your career off than working with people at the end of their lives uh, and sort of learning from them about what they, they learned and processed in their own lives. Okay. Uh, give us a hint on what some of those uh, aha moments were? Well, I think I think the biggest aha for me was is nobody knows when, where, or how they're going to die. Uh, we all know we will. I mean, that's uh-huh. pretty much a guarantee. Um, but but we don't know we don't know when or when that'll happen, how that'll happen. And so this, I used to have a button in my office uh, at hospice that said, "Live live each day as if it were your last, because one day you'll be right." And I think that's hilarious. <laughs> it's, it's, both, it's both hilarious and so profound 
Now, it doesn't mean you throw caution in the wind and do anything you want, but what it what it taught me was you live. You have to live in order to have that full experience of life. And um, and 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 sometimes we we work too much or we we put off those things that are important too long. And and just very briefly, I, I met a number of people who, you know, said they worked their whole life to retire, and then six months after they retired, they were dead or they had a terminal illness. And, and I just thought, well, that's, that's not the way to do this. That's not the, the, the route to go. So that had a huge impact on changed everything in the way that I saw life and death. That's nice. I'm, I imagine you met some extraordinary people at the end of their life. Oh yeah. It, it, it really, it, I, I told, I tell people, I, I speak a lot in healthcare. So I tell people, in these jobs where they're working in healthcare environments, if you're not learning from your patients, you really are not paying attention because they teach us. They, they've already lived so they you can learn so much from that process. So I, I met extraordinary people as patients, but also the people that worked beside me. Just uh, the people that are drawn to that type of work, are, I think, are really kind of cool people. Yeah, really. Huge heart, grounded, yep. smart. You know, I, yeah, I really admire the people who've chosen that field. So what kind of memories do you have of, of people and incidents that uh, stick out for you? Well, um, I, I, this, is, this is a story I often tell, and I'll try to abbreviate it. But uh, one, of the, one of the things that I talk about is the balance between seeking excellence and enjoying the process in life. So doing a good job at whatever you do but making the journey fun. And I remember meeting this woman who, um, who just was this extraordinary person. And when I met her and her family, I realized that this family was just so tight and had great relationships. And it all went back to her. It was just who she was. She had created this environment where she had a great relationship with her husband and kids. And, and uh, she was terminally ill. And she, she had a change in her health. They didn't think it was related to her illness. They thought it might be something like a, an infection or a medication reaction. Uh, so they brought her into our inpatient facility. We had a 12-bed inpatient facility that was very comfortable setting, like a home. And uh, just, you know, flowered sheets, wallpaper, hardwood floors, just a beautiful setting. And I went to see her one day when she got in there, a couple of days after she got in there. And, um, and I could tell that she was definitely different than when I'd seen her before. She... She didn't, her color was different. She was having trouble breathing. She looked very weak. And, uh, and, and I asked her how she was doing and she said, not good. And I said, are you getting everything she ne you need? And she just, she just went, oh, they're spoiling me. They, they anticipate my needs. They, <laughs> I didn't expect that answer. <laughs> yeah, they bring me things before I know I need them. And then she just leaned up on the bed and she was trembling because she was so weak and just took this long gaze around the room. And she said, you know, this place, this place, it's, a, it's so beautiful. She said, you know, I'd heard so much about it. I was dying to see it. Oh, <laughs> and, and then she fell, fell back on her pillow and just started laughing. And, uh, you know, I'm, I'm sitting there thinking as a social worker, what am I supposed to do now? And, uh, and so we just had this moment of laughter, just rich moment of laughter. And, uh, and six hours later, she died. And, oh I, and I will tell you, it was just, it was just extraordinary. It had a profound impact on me because she lived her life the way that I 
try to encourage people to think about living, which is that she did it well, clearly. Her family was evidence of that. But in that moment, when most of us could think of nothing else than our illness, she wasn't going to miss a chance to laugh and enjoy the moment. Uh, so there's just so much packed into that experience that uh, I'll never forget it. Oh, that's a, that's a lovely thing. Yeah. And, we, and we spoiled her with flowered sheets. and Yeah, and yeah. <laughs> so sometimes people that are in hospice are afraid of their transition. Right. And, you know, what did you do to, you know, help them get over that? Well, you know, if you look at the research and, and it, you know, I've been out of it for a number of years, so this may have been updated. But I, I, I remember back then that much of the research said that the vast majority of people were more concerned about the process than the actual death, that it was being in pain or either psychologically or physically. Uh, it was the process of dying that, that, that scared people. And I think in particular of people who might be dying of some sort of respiratory disease, how how uh, how scary that is to not be able to breathe or to feel that you can't get your breath. So, so in in a hospice environment, we we had chaplains and social workers to help with the spiritual and the psychological challenges that people would have to help them wrestle with some of that and what what the fear was about or what you know how their spirituality was affected. Um, and then we had amazing physicians and nurses who were really, really good at managing symptoms. So whether it be a breathing issue or a pain issue, they were able to manage it where they didn't have to knock somebody out with a lot of medication. They could, they could you know, help them to relieve the symptoms, but allow them to still be alert and enjoy some quality time. So I think it was the combination of looking at it holistically that really helped support people. Now, of course, people still had challenges, but, uh, but I think that approach was, was just a great way to do it because you, yeah. you hit all areas of what someone might experience. I know my grandfather was um, really concerned that they were going to drug him up and that, yeah. he, that he would spend his last moments in a, in a daze and, and not be able to participate with the people who were coming to visit yeah. and to say goodbye. I remember, I remember a physician saying that the body is a really amazing, amazing work of art and that the body knows how to protect us. And oftentimes the body does what it needs to do as we near that process. And, and maybe we don't need as much of the external help. Um, and I, I was really struck by that. Um, but, you know, when, when, when someone is at a point where the pain is so great or they're already slipping in and out of awareness or, or getting very close, um, you know, the, the, the medications can, can truly help uh, ease that process. Yep. I'm, I have this, this, I got it. It uh, was Woody Allen who said, yeah. I'm, I'm not afraid of death. I just don't want to be there when it happens. Right. <laughs> exactly. I think that's that's very true of a lot of people. <laughs> um, so, you know, a lot of my folks who come and watch this are really um, into the what happens after we die, because, you know, near-death experiences, it's all about, you know, what happens when we leave yeah. our physical bodies and, and enter into the non-physical. Um, 
So did you see um, people, did they have premonitions about, you know, did they see their dead relatives waiting for them? You know, what kind of, tell us a couple of cool stories here. Yeah, you know, it's interesting. <laughs> so I worked in hospice care for 10 years. Now I only worked in a clinical capacity for about five of those. And, um, you know, during all of that time, I never was with someone when they actually died. I was with both of my parents when they died. And that was really a profound experience to, to, to be witness to that. Um, but I never was really in a hospice setting with someone. I was certainly there shortly before and shortly after, but not at the time. But it was not uncommon at all for patients to say that they had dreamed of taking a, a trip. Um, shortly before they died. It could have been they, they had a dream about being on a train or catching an airplane. Um, it was not uncommon for people to say that they had had a dream. They, that's usually the terms they would use. I had a dream uh, about seeing a loved one who had died. And it was consistent enough and frequent enough that, that it wasn't just random. And so we did believe there was something to that while we we didn't have the ability to, 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 to say what that was or how that works. Um, it certainly did happen. And two of, two of my friends who worked in, in hospice with me, uh, uh, Maggie Callian and Pat Kelly wrote the book, uh, Final Gifts, where they just give one after another, right? One after there another example. A little, yeah. little advertisement right there. Yeah. Yeah. And they just had so many examples that they had seen where people, did somehow convey that they were nearing death and that we uh, who weren't tuned into that might have missed it. Uh, but they saw consistent patterns. And um, I can't really say that I had anything extraordinary other than the idea that someone saw someone, they, they, the loved one they knew or that they dreamed they were going on a trip. But, um, but they certainly had a number of those experiences. Yeah, I had a, a friend of mine who wound up with a terminal disease and, and his his dream was um he was on deck waiting at the first tee waiting yeah. to to tee off yeah you know he, he just loved to golf and and you know that was that was his his metaphor for i'm i'm getting ready to step up and and really enjoy this last round. Yeah. <laughs> That's great. So you mentioned that um uh humor is was was a great thing. It, it where you were introduced to it by this lovely woman and that has been kind of a, a focus of yours. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So how how did that happen? And you know tell us a little bit about how you shifted into helping people um, see the humor in hospice. I love yeah. that alliteration. Yeah. Well, um, I was the guy that wanted to be class clown in high school. And, um, and uh, oh, I got surprised me. <laughs> yeah. I got teacher's pet, which just really irritated me, but um, I grew up in a small town and I knew everybody. So that, that certainly made sense. But um, so I was I was never the kind of guy that was drawn to doing stand-up comedy. A number of my friends have done that, and I just didn't like the environment. I thought, you know, to be in a club 
with a lot of drunk people. And of course, back when I was younger, people would be smoking. I just thought, and then everybody's expectations were so high. That just sounded miserable to me. But I was, I'd always been a fan of humor. I'd always been funny. I always liked humor. I just studied comedians when I was young. So I got to grad school and one of my professors, the guy that was my professor for my research project, my thesis, uh, he allowed me to study uh, a relationship between humor and depression. So I did a research study at the University of Virginia in their Department of Behavioral Medicine, because that's where I was working part time. And we studied uh, how people saw, of all things, far side cartoons, which we now know is deeply flawed because some of them are so bizarre, um, how they saw humor at different points during stages of depression. And it didn't come up with anything profound or different. It just replicated previous studies that showed that when people are seriously depressed, they didn't see anything funny. But as they started to heal, humor would sometimes speed up the process or help the process. Um, so I, I, I amassed this, this just boxes and boxes of research on humor and literally became an expert in the benefits of humor. And I thought, well, you know, I'm, I'm kind of a ham. I like being in front of people. So maybe I could start teaching this. And we started going to a few conferences and teaching about the therapeutic benefits of humor, why it helps us, why it's beneficial to us. And, and that's how I ultimately got into the professional speaking career that I've been doing for the past 26 years was that I did that in my role in hospice by speaking at hospice conferences, but about humor, why humor is helpful to us. And, uh, you know, as I've said before, if you're talking about humor at a hospice conference, you stand out like a sore thumb. Nobody else is doing, <laughs> you know, so to my great benefit, I did stand out and started getting a lot of requests to speak. But, but also in my clinical work in hospice, I always ask that in my initial interview patients, uh, what role humor played in their life or if they valued humor. And my, my purpose for that was it would give you a, a window into their psychological way of looking at the world. If, if I asked somebody how they use humor and they said, well, what's funny about this? Right. You clearly could see defensiveness and maybe a lack of, 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 of being able to, to use or see humor. But if somebody said, oh, you know, we, we do joke telling sessions every night after dinner, then you know they were open to the idea and perhaps it could be used as a tool to help them balance out the stress of the illness. So I did use it in that way in my clinical work, but primarily I used it in teaching. Mm -hmm. And so when you were doing this, this hospice work and you were talking about humor, is this for the, the clinicians? Was it for the, the management staff or for everybody? Yeah. I mean, how did, how did that work? My primary role or, or, or my primary way of teaching about humor was to always use it as a psychological advantage um, or a social advantage. And, and so to get into sort of the mechanics of it, there are two things specifically in the humor research that I think allows us to cope with stress. One is that if you can laugh in the midst of something stressful, you create a moment of reprieve from the stress, which gives you a little bit of distance from the stress. And the stress research will show that if you can get a break from it, it helps you rejuvenate even just a second or two and allows you to continue coping. 
So that was one way. So just being able to laugh in the midst of stress can be helpful. But the second and more powerful way that I think humor benefits us is that humor by its very nature changes our way of seeing things. So let's just say that that a lot of stress is based on how we see something, not so much what's happening, but how we're seeing it. Uh, If we could change the way we're seeing it, perhaps it wouldn't be stressful in the first place. And we can get into a whole other uh, area of mindfulness when it comes to this kind of thing about what we're actually processing in our minds. But, But the very nature of a joke is that it takes you down one path and then changes directions forcing you to see the original premise differently. Well, that's just changing your perspective. So so my theory is, is that the more humor we enjoy, the more we allow ourselves to train the neural pathways in our brain to see the humor in life, then perhaps that allows us to also manage the way we see stress a little bit differently. And so I was always teaching people just to try to incorporate it more in their lives, whether it be in management or leadership, I definitely think there's a communication benefit. If somebody is funny in the way they communicate something, it sticks. People remember it. People remember the person. And I mean, I I used to say, I'm no dummy. I I know that if I say something funny, people will remember me. So it was the way I used to always go into new situations was that's how people would remember me. And so I used it as an advantage in a lot of different ways. Yeah, well... Similarly, I wear a kilt, so people often remember, you know, yeah. who I am because I show up and I, you know, there's a guy in a skirt. Oh, don't call it that. You know, yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, it's because of you know this academic area that I'm in, because you know, in order for me to be get really smart and about near death experiences, you have to talk to a whole bunch of people who've been right. killed and brought back <laughs> to life again. Yeah, you're right, right. Sorry, little dad joke there. Okay. (laughs) Well, you know, give you an example, because I think there's so much truth to that. And the first time I met you, you were wearing a kilt. So I definitely remember that. Um, And ironically, one of my my best friends, uh, his last name is McKeon. And he... His daughter got married recently and he wore a kilt to the wedding. So, uh, you know, it was it was just a, a few weeks after uh, before I saw you. But let me give you an example. So uh, we talked about uh, offline. We talked a little bit about Rotary and I was involved in a chamber of commerce for a little while. And we would have these networking meetings where you would go and you'd meet other businesses. And uh, you, you, there would always be that time during the meeting, say, you know, 15, 20 people there. And you go around the room, tell us who you are and what you do. There's always that. And I just think everybody does the same thing. You know, I work with organizations who do this and it's just standard. So I'm like, I just don't, I never operated that way. So one time I was at a meeting and the person on one side of me was a massage therapist. And the person on the other side of me, coincidentally, was a physical therapist. And, uh, and I just thought that was interesting. And so when it got to me, I said, ironically, I'm sitting in between a massage therapist and a physical therapist. I am so relaxed, and I literally slid out of my chair into the floor, just like that. (laughs) And it's the silliest sort of visual thing. And all of a sudden, everybody's just like, what is this guy doing? And I had probably six or eight people standing in line to talk to me after the meeting. And so 
you know, to me, that's my little research project. It works. It worked. Yeah, it was silly, but I got people's attention. And, you know, that led to potential, say, if I'm in a business, potential business for me. It's true. And if you ever get a chance to go to a near-death conference, <laughs> I have to tell you, these are folks that are just filled with joy. You know, yeah. they, they just, they have learned how to be present yeah and you know they already know what's going to happen on the other side because they've been there and they come back and they went you know it's a really good plan <laughs> yeah. when we leave our physical body so you know let's enjoy this time we have right now which well, speaks sun- to your mindfulness thing you were just talking about right. um so talk a little bit about uh, maybe your practice or how you, how you help people do that kind of mindful work, mindfulness work? Yeah. So, so this is a relatively new thing for me. And when I say relatively new, it's probably only been about 15 years that I've really become more aware of mindfulness in and of itself. And I told somebody, I said, I wish this was something I was taught when I was in first grade. Oh, man. because <laughs> it, it just, it, it would serve our lives so much better. Now, that being said, when I went through social work school, one of the things we are taught is awareness. We are taught how to be aware of process. Like if you're in a group therapy setting, the process of, of not only what the conversation is, but what's going on under the surface, uh, the aware, awareness of where someone is coming from, what their background might be, what their personality might be. Um, and so I would call that paying attention. And, 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 and as somebody who, you know, uh, calls themselves a, a humorist, I have always been paying attention my whole life. That's where humor is. It's out there in the world. It's everywhere. And I've always been paying attention. So I think there was part of me that was already doing this. And the mindfulness literature and study that I've done just reinforced it. But the way that I make the link between humor is I show people how being mindful and aware will lead you to more humor. You will see more humor in the world. Uh, but I think as an awareness, uh, my practice, if you want to call it that, is just that I am constantly aware. I'm like this morning, I was on a walk and I'm just aware of every aspect of the walk. And so I'm trying to practice it in every, in, in every part of my daily existence. I'm not as good at the meditation and some of the things to reinforce that, but I think I'm pretty good at it from a from a just a daily practice of, of awareness perspective. Yeah, I'm thinking of about 20 years ago, I made a um, a shift in my life that it was about being well, Tekker Tolle, it's be here now, right? You know, right? Being present is all you can and then when you catch yourself flipping off into the future or flipping back into the past just go cancel that yeah yeah be here now what's going on now right and man that's a that's a tough practice yeah <laughs> it, it just it, i mean it, it becomes easier as you put yourself as a habit but wow you know we're kind of we're kind of wired to to flip into the future. Right. What's next? It's what's going to happen next. What do I have to prepare for? What do I have to worry about? I mean, my wife and I talk about this all the time because 
she kind of genetically uh, is a worrier. And I think her mother was kind of like that uh, or is, is still like that. And um, I, I was always one of those people, it, it'll work out fine unless something tells me otherwise. It doesn't mean I don't worry about things, but I'm not just naturally worrying about everything. Um, there are very specific areas that I worry about, um, but I don't like if my kids drive home, I don't worry that they got home safely because I figure if they didn't, I'll find out about it. And that's not to say I don't care about them or that I would I'd be concerned about them, but but I don't assume that something's going to happen. And there's also not much you can do about it. Right. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. So how did, how does that um, tell me a story about, you know, somebody who is, is trying to put some humor into their management life or, for instance, or, you know, how to run an organization just like we're way too serious around here. Yeah. I think, I think from a leadership and management perspective, one of the greatest forms of, of humor that can be used in that, uh, in that specific, in that instance, or that style is, is self-deprecating is someone who's so comfortable in their abilities that they can make fun of themselves. Um, this ties into mindfulness too, because you're talking about the, the idea that someone's not worried about how they appear. They're comfortable in their skin. And if you're comfortable in your skin, you can make fun of yourself. And when you do that, I think what happens is it makes you more approachable. It makes you more endearing to the people. Um, I, I used to say a leader needs to be worth following uh, to be a leader. And if, if, if you're so closed off or so guarded or not connected to people, they're not going to want to follow you. And one specific example, I remember working with a CEO one time who wanted some help on his presentation skills. And he was in a, in a hospice environment and, um, and he was a business guy. He came into that role with a business background, even though it was a nonprofit healthcare environment. Uh, he used to actually say, he used to say, uh, we're a nonprofit organization. We didn't start out that way. It just ended up that way. <laughs> so <laughs> I always thought that was funny, but, but he would always do a lot of numbers in his presentation. He would he would, here's how many patients we have. Here's the demographics. Here's where they live. Here's the, you know, here's the kind of coverage we have, Medicare and all the other. And I said to him, I said, think about who your audience is. You're talking to new employees and you're talking to employees and they're caregivers. They don't care about the numbers. Now, granted, if you need them to know this information, we can provide it in some other format, but you don't need to do it during the presentation. He was doing a, an orientation program every month for new employees. I said, why don't you tell a story about the first time you went to see a hospice patient? And the next time he did his presentation, he told the story about going to visit his first hospice patient and just the impact the experience had on him. And so all of a sudden, this guy almost stepped down, if you will, from his CEO role and became a human being. And you could see people sitting there and they leaned up and they connected with him. And he used a little bit of humor in the story, so it made it even better. And then afterwards, all these people wanted to come up and shake his hand and talk to him afterwards. And I, I told him, I said, if you could just see the difference in that experience and previously when you wanted to talk about graphs and charts, uh, you just, you know, it made him more human. And that's what I think humor does. It makes us more human. 
and people appreciate that. Now we still have to be good at what we do. Oh yeah. <laughs> yeah. There's always that. I, I that yeah. just reminds me exactly of um I used to run a chain of department and specialty stores. And one day I when I took over the job, I, I went to a new employee orientation. Yeah. And it was, you know, here's how you use the cash register and here's how you do a return and here's how you check in merchandise. And I I it was like, A, the poor employees are asleep. Yeah. <laughs> and it isn't at all in in mission with who we are. Right. You know? So I, I made it a rule that for the first two weeks, they couldn't touch a piece of paper. They couldn't touch a cash register. All they had to do was go out there and figure out what our customers wanted and just make friends with our customers. Right. Right. What a difference. Yeah. 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 It's well, it's, it's, you know, it, it's also, you're getting at what's the big picture here. The details are important to learn, but if you don't understand the big picture, when I was a manager, I used to have all my employees go to every department in the organization to learn what every other department did. And my reasoning for that was whoever, who knows that one day you get a, a phone message that was like routed to the wrong place. Uh, and you have to direct it back to where it needs to go. A, you know where it should go, but B, you understand where you fit in this bigger, bigger organization and how it all makes sense. Oh, and and how many times has that happened to you? You get off on some extension and somebody goes, right. oh, they sent you to the wrong place, but it's really, you know, Sandra that you need to talk to. Yeah. Let me hook you up with Sandra because she's awesome <laughs> at solving your problem. Right. Oh, okay. That puts me in a good frame of mind, you know, right. knowing that there's a Sandra in my life. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> oh, I'm thinking of, um, I'm, I'm back to the, the folks who you have met at hospice conferences and, 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 you know, the kinds of people that show up for this kind of work, mm -hmm. um, you know, and clearly you stayed in that arena. You do presentations and speeches for other people too, but yeah. you know, you're kind of known for this, this humor and hospice thing. Uh, what keeps bringing you back? Well, I, I think if you ask any person that worked in hospice, uh, the first thing they would say was that it was a great privilege to be able to do that work. Uh, the, the people that don't do that work think it's depressing and think it's really heavy, thinks it, think it would burn you out very, very quickly. But it, it, this sounds odd, but it was the most fun job I ever had because the people that did it were fun. They understood the importance of the balance. And I believe they, they saw every single day the more tragic side of life. So they, they really embraced and understood the need for the other side of life, the, the joy and the richness of life. So I think they pursued it. And I think we all got that on some level. So to be immersed with those people uh, and around those people to me is like nothing else. I mean, I just, when I'm speaking at a hospice conference or at an individual hospice organization, I just... I feel like I'm home with family because I get it. I know that I know what goes on in their mind. I know how they see the world. I understand the challenges of the work. 
but I think most most of those folks would tell you that we we really benefited way more than our patients did just by being in that environment. How interesting. So um, I was looking at the list of books that you have written, and one of them had a title that I just can't figure out. It is, My Kneecaps Seem Too Loose. I knew that would be it. <laughs> <laughs> I just started to chuckle right away. So what is that all about? Yeah, so... And so I'm checking uh, them right now, you know, I, no, they seem to be all right. So, yeah. So if you straighten your knee, leg out, your kneecap is loose. And which always seemed odd to me that it stays there the whole, your whole life and doesn't really go anywhere. But um, uh, so my first book was on seeing the humor in, in life. And then I felt like I needed to do something else for my second book. And I, I just, I didn't have like a book in me, you know, I just didn't, I couldn't think of what it would be. So I wrote the, I started, it was right around the time that Facebook was getting very, very popular. And I was trying to write something funny on Facebook every day, just some random thought, just weird thought. And, um, and one day I was sitting there and I moved my kneecap back and forth and I thought, well, that's weird. So I just wrote, my kneecap seems too loose. And then the next day, you know, I, I wrote something like, um, you know, if, if, your belly button continues to get, if you wore the same sweater for your whole life, would your belly button eventually eat the sweater, the whole sweater, <laughs> you know, like, you know, these random things like what, like, like, uh, anyway, like, like, um, why do we call it a watch rather than an arm clock? <laughs> Just so, so then I got this idea. I'm going to write one every day for a year. Now, obviously, I would sit down sometimes and write three or four at a time. But um, so that was the book. It was just it was called 365 Random Thoughts uh, to Inspire Deeply Shallow Thinking. And uh, <laughs> it was just goofy. Now, here's the best part of this whole thing. Um, I got a call one day from the Mayo Clinic and they ordered 20 copies of that book because they thought it was a medical book. <laughs> Well, it is. We we know the benefits of humor. We covered yeah. that already. Unfortunately, a month later, they called back and said, can we return this? This isn't what we thought. <laughs> but yeah, so yeah, that was just a, that was just a goofy book, but I enjoyed writing it. And I still will post things on Twitter or Facebook that are from that book, just because I think they make me laugh. So <laughs> I love it. And we are bumping up against our time. Yeah. So what haven't I asked you that you would like to kind of wrap this uh, conversation up with? Gosh, that's a really good question. I guess since we just talked about books, you know, we could talk about the book, Do It Well, Make It Fun. That's really my, my primary book. But, um, you know, when we talked about humor, when we hit the, the, the 2000s, like 2008, seven, when the economy tanked, Right. What I found in my speaking business was people really wanted humor, but they didn't have the funds to pay for it because everybody was hurting financially. And um, I started thinking about what I had been doing for years and, and just turned my topic into that. I had been talking to people years about how humor in the workplace is valuable, but you can't use humor if you're not good at your job. We've all had those people in the work environments who are not good at what they do. And then when they try to be funny, everybody just rolls their eyes. They're not taken seriously. They're not respected. 
So I used to tell people, I said, first and foremost, you got to be good at your job. Then you can be fun and people will like that. Uh, if you're good at what you do, people respect you. And if you're fun, people want to be around you. So that that gave birth to the concept of do it well, make it fun. And it it took my material and morphed it into this under this umbrella of be good at what you do first and then make the journey fun. And it was a concept that really resonated with people. And it it totally changed my career, changed my life in the in the sense that for the first time, I felt like I stumbled on something that people got and it worked for them and they appreciated it. And it, I'm not kidding anybody. I don't have it. Nobody's ever said I've had too much deep content. Um, I don't. You know, there's a lot of what I do has is, is entertainment, but the message is buried in there. So metaphorically, hopefully I'm sinking this stuff in to people's brains in a different way, but it's intended to be entertaining. But but that concept, I think, is I just want to explain that because I think it's it really came from my hospice experience was that I realized that we have a journey in front of us and we we have to orchestrate how we manage that journey. Nobody's going to do it for us. And if we can do it in a way that we're proud of what we did and we succeed at what we do because we try to be good at it, but it was fun, too. I mean, I don't think you can ask for anything more. I'll go to that church. Amen, brother. <laughs> yeah. So how do people get a hold of you, Ron? Well, it's very simple. RonCulberson.com is the website, and there's a lot of information on there. I will say there's a lot of free stuff where, um, you know, the books are on there, but there's articles, there's blog, there are videos, and then I have a bibliography of a lot of the books that had an impact on me and and so I make it easy on people. They can just click it and it goes right to Amazon. I don't get uh, I don't get a cut for that, but it just makes it easy. So if people want to read more about some of the topics that have influenced me, they're there. Awesome. Thank you. What a wonderful way to spend an afternoon having humor and hospice and chatting with you. This has been great, Ron. Thanks. Well, thank you, Scott. I really appreciate being included. And stick around, everybody, because... I've got a couple of ideas that I'd like to explore with you. So with that note, Ron, see you later. Bye. Yeah, take care. <laughs>
Ron called that changing perspective. Near-death experiences are like that. We think we have a handle on how the world works. Then, in an instant, we discover our truths just don't hold up. We learn through experiencing the non-physical world that the reality of a universe based on unity changes everything. The concept that consciousness is foundational and comes before matter rocks the world of many of an indie ear. Fourth, when we know that we all win, meaning that we are all unconditionally loved no matter what mistakes we've made in our physical life, gives us the grace to not take ourselves too seriously. It's just the kind of attitude that is best in a leadership position, and that explains how self-deprecating humor can be so effective. Lastly, I love how he emphasizes how paying attention, being here now, is the way to appreciate life and find humor in it. Many a near-death experiencer has come back from their experience with a commitment to paying attention to every precious moment in physical life that it has to give us, not only for the experience, but also as a vehicle for listening to spirit as it contacts us through those coincidences that come our way. I do hope that videos such as this give you some insight on what near-death and shared-death experiencers discover about the afterlife, the nature of consciousness, and how to live your life more fully. If you've not already hit that subscribe button, I would encourage you to do so. If you're watching on YouTube, please like, subscribe, and comment. You can find the Afterlife Files on all podcast streaming apps. Apple, Google, Spotify, Audible, a lot of them. Follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and TikTok. Or pay us a visit at neardeathmeditations.com. I'll repeat that, neardeathmeditations.com. Bye now. See you next time, and thank you for joining us at the Afterlife Files.